Today's daf is Samachal 61. We pick up at the top the issue here in the middle of the uh, sec- the this final section of the sixth parak, which focuses on the uh, the chiyav of age, the liability for fire. And uh, we're in the middle of a fascinating agadita, where uh, based on these uh, verses in uh, Shmuel and in Divrei uh, Hayamim, where David uh, Malach is uh, asking, is, uh, is it's read uh, this strange story where he sent to get water. Yeah, he said, "Who would give me water to drink?" And his uh, some of his uh, soldiers broke through to the camp of the police team to retrieve the water. And it said, then he refused to drink it, and he poured it as a libation. And so that was very strange. What was going on there? And in one version of the story, there was a field filled. It was the police team were hiding in the field, and the field was filled with lentils. And in another version of the story, the field was filled with barley. So what does all of this mean? So the Gemara basically translates it that the water really represented the Sanhedrin, and he was looking for a psak and three versions of what type of a psak he was looking for. One was what was the halacha about something that was buried, hidden in a fire. So that's why we're bringing it up here. Um, and the uh, two other versions is he wanted to know, are you allowed to burn down the, uh, the, uh, these uh, piles of grain if the police are hiding there to save yourself? Um, but it is, you're saving yourself with your friend's property. And the third version was they wanted to know if he could take one of the piles to feed his animals in order to repay them with the other pile. Um, so according to the last two versions, they basically told him technically you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to burn down, you know, save yourself with your friend's property. You're not allowed to steal something with the intention to repay. But you're a king and you are allowed to do that. Um, and um, because a king has, you know, can do what he wants in terms of people's property and so on. Um, so that's the, uh, so those are the different sort of versions of the Agadita. Um We're going to wrap that up right now. Um, the Gemara... Um, uh, um, I should just sort of say that the two, two issues very important like you know practical issues that we raised yesterday uh, that, that came up yesterday is the idea that you're not allowed to save yourself with your friend's property is a very strange idea since you know in Judaism the general principle is that you can do anything to save a life you know with the exception of like the three major things nobody ever said you know you can you can break any you know violate anything to save a life except for Avodazar and stealing right um, so um, so it really, so it's very strange, and that leads Tosis to say that we're taught, and a lot of Rishonim to say that obviously you're allowed to, uh, you know, steal or whatever, or you know, uh, damage somebody's property in the process of saving a life, but you just have to pay back. And the question was, are you allowed to do it without having to pay back? You know, you could sort of maybe try to frame it otherwise as like, uh, you know, about like uh, it was a very distant concern; it wasn't an immediate concern that his life was really endangered. Uh, the issue that I wanted to raise yesterday was, you know, normally when we speak about you can do an Avera, the Avera it's just a question about the sin element of it, right? But here the question is, is about you actually injuring somebody else, and maybe you can't do anything you want to protect your life with somebody else's injury. Now, of course, we say you can't murder so it sounds like something anything that's short of murder you'd be allowed but it's not so clear, like, would you be able to blind somebody for the sake of saving your life? You know, what stage could you actually inflict injury on another person to 
protect your own life. But it still does seem, even if you put limits on that, you know, it still does seem that property, which is completely replaceable, you know, uh, should be an obvious that you're allowed to do it. So it is strange, the simple sense of this Gemara, that says you're not allowed to, um, which is why Tosus rereads it. Um, the other point, though, I wanted to make, which we skipped over yesterday, which is important, is a really, uh, I think, bigger question of whether normal rules apply during wartime, especially, you know, rules that relate to property and person. Because, you know, what's a war? A war is when you're going and you're destroying property and person. So the idea that here he is in the context of, you know, fighting against the police team, and the question is, will he have to compensate this person for the property and so on? I mean, I don't know. If you're in the middle of a war and you're, and you're you know, bring, bringing your tanks through somebody's field, you know, you don't have to go ahead afterwards and compensate the person, right? Even if they're on your side of the, you know, even if you're in your, you know, one of your countrymen. So it's a strange type of a question. Now, maybe it's, he said it's less about a major war and more about like a small conflict. Thank you so much. Um, but um, it is strange that the Gemara sort of assumes, you know, treats this as a question of like a personal saving of your life and a personal question of, like if you're, con- you know, an army goes through a place, they confiscate the property to, to feed their troops and their horses. I've when he had horses. So like, you know, so the question, oh, can I take it? Or can, can I take it with the condition to pay back? Like it's funny that it reads this at a very personal level and not, you know, in the context of war. Maybe, again, it just assumes that just because he was fighting the police team doesn't mean all of a sudden it becomes a larger context of war. You know, it could have been like a local skirmish or something. But it is very interesting from that perspective. So let's now continue in the Gemara. Yeah? I think we had a discussion earlier about using appropriate force. So how does this fit in, like, mm-hmm. if you're being attacked by somebody personally? Can you, do you have to be concerned how much force you use to protect yourself? Yeah, so that's a good question, right? Well, normally, right, normally you say, yeah, so, um, you know, there's a whole question about like, if you're intervening to save somebody who's being, like, uh, pursued, right, and you could save the person with uh, a lesser use of force, right, so you're not, you know, you're, you're liable if you use a greater amount of force, but the question is, like, what does it mean you could, right, if you find yourself sort of like in that situation, you know, you, yeah, who, you know, and you have to use the full amount of force necessary so that you can be certain that you will, right. So, I mean, so, yes, I mean, I assume that we define, you know, we very, we very generously the parameters of what means, like, you know, you needed to. But if there's a clear case where you didn't need to, right, um, then it would be different. Some Akron want to make a distinction also between the sort of standards we apply to the person who himself for herself is being pursued and a third party. But the person being pursued has more latitude, right, than a third party. But those are good questions. That's what's happening now, like the Hebron soldier, you know? Yeah. Or the right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Those are really critical questions, right? How do you how do you define necessary force, right. right? Especially when you're in a stressful situation and you know you need right. So those are the questions. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the Gemara says now picking up at the top of Tamachal from Zalif. Um, okay, Bishleim the three lines from the top. Tarti. According to those that say the explanation, either that he got a ruling about whether he could. Uh, save himself with somebody else's property, whether he would have to pay back, let's say, reading Tosa's way, or whether he could steal the, take the, uh, you know, uh, the, the barley to pay back the lentils. So he got a ruling that technically he's not, that he's not allowed, that, that the normal person isn't allowed, but he is because he's a king. So then it, exp- and then it says that he, so he chose to do, not use his king prerogative. That's what we read yesterday. So it works according to those, what the verse says, David didn't want to drink them, meaning he didn't want to accept the 
psak that allowed him to do it because just by, on virtue of him being a king, he wanted to. He didn't want to take the king's prerogative. Since it's basically forbidden, lonichali, I don't want to do it, even though I have, a, I'm allowed to as a king. But his whole question was, what's the halach if I burn down these sacks and there's something buried in there if I have to pay for them? So my shotam. What does it mean he didn't want to drink them? I mean, it's just a psak question. Does he have to reimburse for the stuff that was hidden or not? So says no. He didn't say it over in the name of. Apparently, he sent his you know these uh, these valorous. Or he didn't send them, but these valorous soldiers went to. Uh, it said to break through the camp of the police team to get the water. So in this version, the water is the teaching of the Torah. So they somehow had to break through the police team in order to go to the Sanhedrin and get the psak and bring the psak back to David. So David did not want to tell over the psak in the name of these. Uh, of these, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, valorous men who went ahead and retrieved it. Why? You would think they deserve that honor. But Amar Kazmiku Blanimi based Dino Shoh Shmuel Haramasi. This is the tradition I have from the basin of Shmuel. Call a Moser Atwan no Shmuel Haramasi, not to be confused with the Amora Shmuel. Call a Moser, since we're making David into a rabbi in this story. Call a Moser Atmo La Musa Torah. Anybody who, is will, who goes ahead and like risks their life to, for the sake of Torah, Eno means Var Halacham Yishmo. You don't say Halacha in his name. Now that's strange. You would think he deserves all the more honor. But actually, you know, the way the, uh, the, 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 the Marshat reads, reads this as a critique. Like, you know, you might say, you know, that it's the same phrase. Torah, you know, is acquired by somebody who's willing to, like, su- sacrifice their life for it. But that's a metaphor. That's not literal. Okay? So you're not really supposed to risk your life just to get some Psach Halacha. Okay? So, and the Marshat says that, like, you know, if the whole idea that you say over Torah in the name of the person who teaches it, is because it's maybe Geula Olam brings redemption to the world. So somebody who is basically prepared to risk life for an unnecessary purpose. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, you don't. Torah is not one of the things you literally risk your life for. So then, you know, they're not worthy of that merit. So it's quite fascinating, right? That you know, you read the story. I mean, it also explains why normally we read David didn't want to drink it. That, that actually is closer to the whatever the, whatever the shot is going on there in those psukim. It seems like David was sort of just like wistfully saying oh I wish I had some water and then they actually risked their lives and David actually felt like that was a stupid thing to do I'm not going to drink the water that you went ahead and you know for no purpose like risked your lives maybe risked other people's lives and so on so that's sort of what the Gemara is now saying but learning it is talking about Torah okay um, now and he poured the water out as some anointment to God if it's one of these two things about the issue about the uh, taking in order to pay back or saving yourself for somebody else's property because it means that he acted for the sake of heaven he could have done these acts because he was the king but because he was being righteous he didn't because a normal commoner would not have been allowed to do it but according to the one that says it was just a psak about whether he had to reimburse for something that was hidden in the, you know when the fire burnt it down what does it mean he anointed it to God it means rather than attributing it to these uh, you know these uh, soldiers who broke through he gave it to God. He said it in the name of the anonymous tradition. So this teaching, this water, as it were, is now God's water. It wasn't their water, right? So it was somehow part of the anonymous tradition. Okay. That was a fascinating end to that story. Um, and interesting with all the discussion of fire. Have a little discussion about water, you know, and water as Torah. Okay. So now the Gemara continues. Um, or the next Mishnah. Back to technical issues about fire. 
If the fire passed over a geder, now we, we normally translate get as a fence, but geder normally means like a wall of bricks, a wall of stone, which is four amos high, oder harabim, or passed through a path of the, you know, like a, a common thoroughfare, which is basically understood to be 16 amot, like 24 feet wide, onahar, or passed through a river, patur, um, you're exempt. So this is a question about what constitutes a legitimate shemira of the, uh, of the fire, right? So if the fire can't spread with a ruach mitsuya, that's fine. Then it's not. Then you're not fundamentally having created the hazard. Let's say it could spread, but you've got a big wall around your property. Okay, so here it says, okay, if the wall is four almost high now, really four almost is six feet. So again, I don't know. I mean, I assume a normal fire, if it spreads in your property, six feet will contain it, right? But sometimes it gets out of control. So by the time it's reaching the edge of your property, it's a pretty big fire. Uh, that's true too, right? <laughs> right, and we're gonna. <laughs> Right, and we're going to see in a minute also where is it in your property, you know, wh- you know, how much of your just property is around it before it gets to the edge of your property. Right, so it's hard, so, so, and you know, you all think it's all according to the size of the fire, right? Or all according to what you, how you could imagine how potentially the fire could grow. So let's see what the Gemara does with this. Fatanya, but didn't we teach in a brace Avra Geder Shugavo Arba Amos Chayev that if it's four Amos high, you're Chayev and it doesn't say how high maybe it's basically trying to say that no matter how high the wall is or it's not clear in that right to when you would be exempt so Amra Papa Tanadidan Kachashi so we're going to try to reconcile the two Tanadidan Kachashi Milamalu Lamata our Tana is going from a big wall down Sheish Amos Pater Chamesh Amos Pater Six Year Pater Five Year Pater Ad Arba Amos Pater Your Pater until you get to four amot. So when it says your pater four amot, it means up to four amot your pater, less your chayev. Okay, that was pretty clear. Tana bara, the other, the outer tana, the uh, the the brighta nilmata lemala kachashi. He was going from b- bottom up. Stay amos chayev, two amos your chayev, shlosh amos chayev, three your chayev, arba amos chayev. Your chayev until four. So when it says your chayev, four amos your chayev, it doesn't mean that you know uh, that like. You know, with, you're indefinitely chayev. It means up to four amos your chayev. Anything more than four amos your pater. And when the and when our mission says four amos your pater, it says once it's four amos your pater. So everybody sort of agrees that more than four amos your pater. The question is always, what about exactly four amos? Which one do you read? Which way? But it's funny, you know. So one is being read sort of like up to four amos your 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 chayev. More than that, your pater. All right. So now the gemara continues. Um, uh, where are we? Um, okay. Amarava, Arba Musha Amru, the four Amus that they said, the Pater, a few bestay him. Even, now we start getting to the specifics, because it should all bend on these circumstances. So he says, even if your field is filled with these thorns and thistles, which is the case in the Torah, right? Umatzak Kotzim, which presumably is like excellent kindling, right? It's thin, it's small, it's dried out. So even if it's like likely, apparently, for it to spread, um, nevertheless, you're exempt, which seems quite strange. Let's see where the Gemara goes with this, right? It shouldn't matter what the circumstances is. Um, so let's see where the Gemara goes. Um... Uh, where are you? A few of us take kotzim. I'm a papa umisvas kotzim ulamala arba amot. But he says, ah, one minute though. It has to be from the edge of the kotzim above for amot. So if you've got, let's say, a lot of wood laying on your ground, okay, then the for amot is measured not from the earth, but from the top of the fuel, like the stuff that the fire could be burning. Okay, so where the base of the fire would be or whatever. You know, it's so, so it's like, a, so if you, there's a lot of, 
of, of thorns and thistles. It's four almost over, higher than the top of the thorns. If there's a lot of, you know, just uh, wood and whatever and sticks, it's four almost higher than the sticks. Okay, you would really want to say maybe it should be four high, high, almost higher than the flame, but then you don't know where that flame is going to be, right? You start with your fire 20 feet away from the wall, so as long, you know, so you don't know how high the flame is going to be when it gets to the wall, so, but as long as, apparently, as long as your wall is four higher than whatever the sort of, uh, apparently, you know, uh, fuel, wood source, you know, fuel source is on the ground, that's considered to be high enough. All right, so now let's see, um, uh, one minute, oh, I just want to check Tosos, he has an interesting explanation, one minute, um, Yeah, okay. So it sounds like this. Um, uh, yeah, if you look at the last toast, the, the toast Avra, at the ba- bottom of that toast, it says Pita, like the last four lines of that toast is Avra. The Masnisina Etej Lake Akai. When the mission says four Amot, it means four Amot higher than the, uh, than the woods that are using for the fire. I guess that means that even if you're having, you know, if here's your field, if here's your field and here's your wall, right, and you're having your fire in the middle, right, so let's say you know, you, let's say you've got you know, this this is your, you know like, let's say this is, you know, that's your your whatever, your wood pile, right, and here's your fire. So it says it's clear from the Mishnah that you start the four Amos it has to be four Amos from the height of the wood pile, okay so you, right, so there's two things, there's how high is the fire where you're actually making it, and wh- what's the fuel that's on the ground, right, so it says it has to be four amos higher than the sort of wood that's on the ground and four amos also higher than the top of the wood pile or you know where the you know where the fire is burning I wonder if you had a barbecue though I'm serious if you had a grill right you know you had like this grill and the fire was here does it have to be right it has to be four amos higher than that or is the fact that it's like contained in the presumably not presumably the only concern would be if the grill knocked down you know and then it spreads so then it would still be like four amos from the you know from the base of the ground okay so anyway so it's four amos from where like the uh, from the base of the fire uh, the, the top of the wood source of where the fire is burning or the wood that's on the ground um, okay a few mistake all of this is when the fire is like going up straight. If the fire is like, you know, like, like leaning, right, bending, right, you know how those, when the fire spread, right, they're like, the, you know, they're like, it's this like, like angle, they're slanted. In that type of a case, now there's a question what this means. Rashi says it means even if it's trans, you know, even if it goes across a hundred amot, it's still higher because it'll just spread real widely when it's at that angle. Tosos says, no, we're not talking about the distance. We're talking about height. We're talking about a wall. So those guys, it means even if a wall is 100 almost high, apparently if a fire is like, you know, once the fire is sort of blowing and moving in that type of a way, then presumably it can go over even a very high wall. Of course, I don't know because, you know, it, presumably it only becomes kolachas after it escapes, right? Presumably when you're, or nechsefes, I mean, you know, when you're burning it, I mean, I don't know, maybe it means, here I'm having a fire, and I'm still tending the fire, and now it's starting, the wind is moving, or so... To clear a brush oh, that's interesting, you're intentionally... Oh, I never thought about that, but right, I always think about a fire like, yeah, no, you're just trying to cook something, or for warmth, yeah, but you're right, you might actually be trying to spread a fire to clear brush or something. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense, because right. fire could turn into... Exactly, how do you know what it's going to turn into? It's
it sounds like while you're still tending to it, it's in that state. But so. Right, but you, but you have to know that if you're about to do a fire that's nichsefet, then you then you're not going to be exempt no matter how. If you're going to do any fire that has the possibility of right, so that becomes that question. Right, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. That becomes exactly the question. So the fact that your fire has the potential to be nichsefet, when do you measure nichsefet or kolachat? Right, that's exactly the question. Um, okay, so the Gemara says. Um, no, our Mishnah is that it's at, like, it's bending, it's at an angle. But if it's a straight-up fire, if you call you putter, even a small wall, you're putter, because, again, then, but, but that's always the question. How do you know that that kolachas won't become a nichsefes? But anyway, presumably, if it's going straight up, we're not so afraid it's going to spread. Tiny kavasi de rav, we thought like rav, when it's straight up, I will be nichsefes, but if it's bending, the eight simitriyin law, and there's available fuel, a few ad mea meal chayev, even a hundred mil yechayim. Now, mil is like a kilometer. So, even if mea amma is an exaggeration for a height of a wall, who makes a wall a hundred amot? Mea mil, like this is obviously we're talking about distance. Nobody talks about height by saying mea mil. Um, but Tosa still wants to say we're talking about a wall. So Tosa says we're talking about the thickness of the wall, <laughs> which still is obviously an exaggeration. No wall is a hundred kilometers thick. But anyway, but it's, it might be that this is talking about the distance that it, trans- it traverses and not about the height. Of the wall. Nahar, and now because the end of it now it does talk about the distance that it's traversing. If it passes a river or a, uh, a stream of water, we'll see what a shulit is in a minute, that's eight amos wide, patur, you're exempt. So that does sound like we're talking. And then it's interesting. So even if you've got this bending fire, if it traverses like a lot of straight ground, you'll be chayev. Because that, you know, you have these forest fires, right? They can traverse an enormous amount of air. But in terms of a place of water, even with this type of a fire, presumably it won't traverse a place of water. Again, I don't know if that's actually true. I mean, I imagine it needs fuel, you know, but I don't know how these, I, I don't know the, the physics of these fires. Okay? Um, but again, the big question with all of this is, at what stage do we begin to measure this? Like, at what stage, when it's in your control and the potential, what's already happening in your control? Like, that's the key question. All right. Derech now if it passes a uh, public thoroughfare, your puck, so, Montana, who is the author of this? It says this. I'm a rabbi, Rebbe Lezer. He is Rebbe Lezer. Non-Rebbe Lezer, Omer, Sheishes Re'amos, Kederach, Rishish HaRabim. That the 16 Amot is the width of Rishish HaRabim. Now, why that shows that that's Rebbe Eliezer and what, you know, his ruling about the normal width of Rishish HaRabim is, it's not exactly clear. But, okay. Anyway, but if it's very wide, if it's 16 Amot wide, then it's, uh, then that's wide enough for you to be exempt. Now, that's going to be funny because we're going to see in a minute in the next Mishnah that, uh, um, that, uh, you know, 16 amot, just a straight, un, uh, unimpeded distance might not, you know, if it's in your territory, might not be enough to exempt you. So we'll get back to that in a minute. O Nahar, or passes through a river. Rav Amar Nahamamash, literally a river. The small Amar Arisa Didiloi. No, even something like an irrigation canal. Mandamar Nahamamash, the one that says a river exempts you. Even if there's no water, presumably it's wide enough, or because there's like the moisture there, you know. And the one that says an irrigation canal, in only if there's actually water in that canal. 
But not if there's no water, no, because then what's the big deal for it to cross the for it to cross that canal? It's not awesome. Now we taught over there in Peah. The Eidel must seek in the Peah. The following things divide a field into two fields that each field you have to give Peah for, right? You have one big field, there's a river running through it. Is it one field or two fields? You have to give Peah from each half or one Peah for the whole thing. So, Hanachal, uh, Wadi, Vashalulit, and this Shalulit, which we mentioned before, we'll see in a minute what that is. Vederech HaYachi, Vederech HaRabim, or just a simple path, even an individual path, or, and certainly a path for them, you know, for a public thoroughfare. My Shalulis, so what is this Shalulis, which also will help us explain this Shalulis we mentioned before that exempts you if the fire crosses it. A place where, like, you know, uh, the rainwater, like, you know, a fl- you know, just streams there. So it's not actually like a, uh, you know, it doesn't, you know, I don't know if that's supposed to indicate that it's some type of a, of a small ditch that you've dug in order to serve as like a drain pipe, you know, that gets all the rainwater, collects there and goes, or it's just like a naturally low place. You know, it's always like when it rains a lot, there's always these places on the street where because of the curvature, right, the water tends to like gather in a particular place and go down there, right? So anyway, presumably if it's something that, that divides the field for payah, it is some type of a semi-permanent feature of the field. It's not just at, while the rain is going there. So presumably it has worn out some type of a crevice, you know, where the rain is passing through. Um, now again, but the, so presumably also when the fire crosses, though, I assume that you're only exempt if the rainwater is actually running there, not just if it normally would. No, it is some type of a of an of a of a of a of a, uh, of a ditch of water that the word shalulit is not to gather, but shalal is like the booty that it like spreads out. You know, it's uh, it's uh, it's, uh, it's it's booty to its uh, to, uh, to its banks. You know, so it gets filled with water and then it overflows. Um, Okay. Um, if you say that there's a place where the water, rainwater collects there, certainly this type of a, an amatamine, which is like a dug, you know, ditch. It's not just a natural thing that gets formed. That's a much bigger type of a, of a break in the field. We're talking about payah. But if it's only this, like, uh, ditch of water, that doesn't separate the field. Those are just called like puddles in the ground. Right? If it's not like actually a man-made thing and it's just a natural place where water collects, that's not significant enough to divide up the uh, field. Therefore, it's for payah. But we brought it in because we mentioned Shalulis is something for a fire. Okay? Um, so, what we have now is, what have we said? That you make a fire in your field if the uh, fence is, if the wall is high enough or if it, you know, has to pass, you know, this type of a large distance or some type of a place of water, um, you're going to be exempt. Of course, the key question always is, like, how do we measure, you know, what size of the fire, what the nature of the fire is when you're making it to determine, you know, what type of, how high the wall has to be in all these other circumstances. Is it its potential? Like, what could be anticipated as its potential? You know, all these sort of key questions are missing. All right, let's look at the next Mishnah. Hamadli Pato Shalom. Now, you lit a fire in your field, which presumably was the case in the previous Mishnah. Now, here, presumably, you don't have a wall. You just have an open field, but there's a lot of flat land and distance. How far does it have to spread before you're considered to be responsible? So, You look at the person as if he's in the middle of a bait core, which is, I think, a... Uh, 
73 amot by 73 amot about a square area so that would mean if you're in the middle of it it would have to pass something like a, like a 32 amot in order and, and you know and only then would you be chayev is that what it says there does it give you the, the uh, dimensions there David I think it's like 73 and a half amot in each direction or something like that Measures for 274 by 274. Of 274 by 274, Amot? Amot, Amot, yeah. Oh, okay, so I was wrong. The center is 137. Oh, okay, I think I was so... Oh, why, why was I doing... Oh, I guess I was doing a quarter of that. Okay, so anyway, fine, okay. So I got the, I got the numbers wrong. Okay, so 137 Amot, and, and after that point, you'd be Pater. Rabbi Eliezer, Omer Tet Zayin Amot. And now we understand why we quoted Rabbi Eliezer before. Rabbi Eliezer said, no, once 16, after 16 Amot, uh, you know, as... Uh, you know, then you're patur. If there were 16 amot for it to pass, you, it's not expected that it will, a normal fire will spread beyond that. So anything more than that, you would be exempt. Okay, now that explains now why when it said before Rishit Harabim in the previous Mishnah, we said that was Rabbi Eliezer. Because Rabbi Eliezer says Rishit Harabim is 16 amot. Okay, so our previous Mishnah, if you think about it, like it's one thing to say a wall or a river, right? Those things really do stop a fire. But just plain, you know, straight horizontal distance, you know, you would think like, really? 16 amot? After 16 amot, you're no longer responsible? Like, you much more understand the earlier position that needs 100 and something amot. Rabbi Yaakiv Omer, Chamishimama. Rabbi Yaakiv says 50 amot, like that, 75 feet. Okay? Rabbi Shimon Omer, Shalem Yishalem HaMavir Tadeira. Hakol Ufiyad Lekas. Thank you. Which sounds like, you know, you got, which, you know, it's all based on the fire. Like, what do you mean? 50, 16. Like, you gotta look. How big of a fire are you making? How much fuel is there on your ground? What are the expected wind conditions? Right, you guys, I mean, that's the only thing that makes sense. How do you give these arbitrary numbers? Now, part of the reason that the rabbis might give those arbitrary numbers is that it's so impossible, you know, practically to adjudicate a case. Like, how are we going to retroactively figure out exactly what the wind conditions were and how much fuel you had and exactly how big the fire was? Like, was people taking pictures at the time? I mean, you know, right? So, but on the other hand, it's just so arbitrary, those other numbers, right? So that's what Rabbi Shimon said. Um, okay, so it says, but now the Gemara thinks that Rabbi Shimon is saying, that basically saying, a kofiyad leka means you're always going to pay, like shalem yishalem, which is an interesting point. You know, the fire is the one thing in the psukim that it doesn't say that you, if you watch it, you're putter, right? It says, by the short, it says, velo yishmerenu, by the board it says, velo yichasenu, and by the fire it says, kiketzeyesh, the fire goes out. Shalane Yishalane. It never says your puzzle, which you can understand. Right? Because a fire, like, you know, it always has this tremendous potential that maybe can't I mean you could still say I've done everything normal and you know the uh, you know and the everything you know was complete on us, completely unexpected. But anyway Well, right. I mean you could have taken right, you could have taken like precautions in terms of the wall you made around the fire and other types of things, you know. But right, there's no like one but exactly the fire out of control is Right, and once it's out of control, then you, then it's over. Right, so the Gemara initially seems that Reb Shimon just means, no, you always pay. So the Gemara says, the Reb Shimon, Shiur, but Leka? Does Reb Shimon not hold that there's an amount of guarding that you can do for a fire and be exempt? That's not, we taught in the Mishnah. Now, this is an interesting halacha. Baba Kama talks about after the fact. You cause damage, how much do you have to pay? 
Baba Basra talks about before the fact. Baba Basra is laws of neighbors. And I basically have a right, like, you know, Michael was asking the other day, does the fire damage include, when you have to pay for fire, does it include smoke damage? Which is, I think, a great question. Um, and I still have to find the answer. But in Baba Basra, the question is not if, if we're neighbors, not if, like, under what circumstances do you pay me, but under what circumstances can I tell you, you've got that oven, it's creating an enormous amount of smoke, which is polluting my property, you have to move it further away from the property line. You have to do something, you know, you have this beehive, those bees are coming into my property. You know, so that's like the laws of neighbors, which create, it's called harchakas nezikin. What I can demand of you to keep yourself away to prevent me from being damaged, which is not the question of compensation after the fact. So that's the case here. I've got an oven in a house, and you're living either on the top floor or the bottom floor, and I've got my oven, and I can't say, ah, I'm doing with my oven, it's none of your business. Now you could say, look, that oven is a fire hazard, and you are not allowed to have that oven in your, you know, your part of the house without actually making certain precautions. Rashi actually says it's not just the person at the bottom or the top of the house, it's like the people of the city. It's actually like a city imposing, you know, like a fire, like a, what do they call it, like a, not a, a, a fire code? You know, people of the city imposing like these safety laws. You're being responsible with your oven is all of our business, and we can tell you this is what you have to do, okay? So, here's what it says. You can't have an oven in your house. There has to be four amot between the top of the oven and the roof. Okay, otherwise, obviously, it's a fire hazard. If it was in the second story, in addition to the distance between the top and the roof, there also has to be the floor. It has to be like three trachim, you know, thick. So it doesn't, obviously, the heat of it doesn't break through the floor. With the kira, which is a, a type of an oven which is a, that has less concentrated heat, tefach, it only needs a tefach. And, if, and even if you've taken these precautions, the Mishnah here is saying, if it actually a fire does start, you're liable. Reb Shimon Omer, right, because there's a different halacha between what, you know, what we can demand of you to prevent us from being hurt, and then the question of, of what liability you have if something happens. Shimon says, only the whole reason for these things, for these, uh, you know, uh, uh, degree, like uh, particular amounts of distance that you have to do, you know, it's to tell you, meaning, if, if you've taken those precautions, then it means that if something happens, you're exempt. So the says, you see that Reb Shimon says, you can do things to be protective of a fire in order to be exempt. Or how come in our mission it sounds like he's saying there's nothing you could do. Of course, one might imagine there's a difference between a contained fire and an exposed fire, you know, different types of things, but it's presumably nobody disagrees, says the Mishnah, that you can take precautions and be putter. So what, so what, so what does Rabbi Shimon mean? So the Gemara says, um... He doesn't mean you always pay. He means that it's all based on the particulars. Based on how big the fire is would determine, and I would also say based on much, you know, kindling there is on the ground would determine how much of a distance you need in order to be exempt, in order to say that you've made clear it won't go out of your property. Um, we will like Reb Shimon. Which is like relieving because some of these numbers before, right, the four on most, the this, the that, the straight, the bent, it's like, you know, it's like, 
you need like like you, you feel that on the one hand well there's two problems on the one hand you feel the numbers are arbitrary you agree with Rabbi Shimon that you need to assess each case based on its circumstances but the other sort of I guess you know frustrating thing was the question about like how do you determine it like if I've got a flame that's only this big right you say like okay then this amount of distance just say wait wait, wait. based on prevailing wind conditions there's this likelihood that it will get to be a bigger flame and then you're going to need a higher fence or more distance like how much do you factor in do you assess it based on the current reality or based on the possible future way in which the fire could grow you know so I, I don't really know the answer I mean logically you would think that any 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 thing about determining if whether it's protected is anticipating those possible future things I mean if you just think about the well remember by the well we said if you've got a cover that can protect it against oxes but not camels but camels are likely to be in the neighborhood then it's not a good cover right so if you've got a fire that could protect it based on this size but it can't protect it based on the size that it's likely to grow to based on potential wind conditions and other types of things so you really do understand this idea like you know the same way we never say how thick does the cover of the well have to be right what do you mean how thick it depends on the circumstances everything depends on the specifics okay so how you exactly assess what those specifics are I don't know but at least you understand the position alright so now the Gemara says like this um now we finally turn after we move beyond the question about Shmira we, finally, we go to this question it's so interesting I don't can't explain the reverse order but like all the other uh, Nazikin we first explained what the liability was and then we said what the level of Shmira was you needed here we sort of start by the reverse you know what type of a Shmira is sufficient and then about what happens if you what is the liability and we finally turn to this issue of things buried in the you know in the haystack the needle in the haystack anyway you know the, the debate of Rabbi Yudah the Chachamim about Tamun about buried things so let's take a look Hamadik Zagadish you lit a, uh, a stack of grain the Hayu Kalim, and there were vessels in it okay Vidalku and they and they lit on fire and they burnt you have to pay even if something is buried in the haystack no you look at it as if what you would have expected to be in it if all you saw on the outside was a big uh, stack of a wheat then you pay as if there was, it was all wheat or if it was all barley you don't pay if there was something buried, hidden in it that was like not normal thing okay right now we're going to get back to this issue about things hidden in the you know buried things for fire but we're going to first for a minute speak about this uh, other part of this mission which we've seen multiple times let's say there was a, a, a goat that was bound up near this a stack of, of wheat with Evid Samuchlo and a slave that was nearby the Nisraf Imo and they burnt Chayev you're Chayev why are you Chayev because even if the slave died you're not going to say because you know what you normally say in a case of something that caused death because he could have run away he wasn't the slave wasn't bound the reason that you're Chayev for the, if the Gdi wasn't bound you'd also be Pater because the Gdi should have run away and that's, and that's not seen assuming that, the, that there was some ability to run away it wasn't trapped okay so you're, you're only Chayev if both things are true the Gdi was bound so you, he couldn't have run away and the Evid was unbound so you can't say Kim Lebed alright so in that case you're going to be Chayev um, however Evid Kavulo if the Evid was bound and therefore he was def- he couldn't have run away so basically what happened was an act of murder so you're going to say Kimle 
die, so you'll be exempt on everything. Or the vav here is read as an or. Or gedi um, Or if the goat was unbound, so then you're not liable for that because it should have run away. So either the evid bound, you're not liable because of kimle, or you know, or the gedi is, is not bound up, you're not liable because it should have run away. In that case, v'nisrav imo, and they were it was burnt patur, you're exempt. Okay, so that was that case we've had that before about the goat and the slave and about whether fire is like chitzav and therefore would you say a principle of kimli bidrabamine it's like an act of murder now back to the issue of tamun Umoding Chachamim Le Rebbe Yehuda, Chachamim agree to Rebbe Yehuda, Chachamim say that you are not liable for something that is buried in the haystack. The Mazlik Esabira, if you lit a like a castle, like a bit a house, Shehu Mishalim Kol Mashabatocha, you pay for all the furniture, everything that's in it. Shekain Derech Bnei Adam Laniach Bevatim, because people normally keep things in their house. So of course, you're going to be liable. Now, the simple sense of this, if we had not been trained since the beginning of the Masechet to say that the Chachamim have this arbitrary exemption of tamun, of things that are buried, he would have said that nobody here has some special halacha that there's some exemption for something that's buried. The Chachamim are just saying you're not liable for something that nobody reasonably could have expected. You happen to have, you know, your, your, your Van Gogh painting buried in your haystack. You can't make me pay for that, right? There's also a whole question about proving it. I guess you could prove you go afterwards and see the chars or something. But nevertheless, like the, that seems to be, wow, something I should have expected. You know, you keep stuff in your house and your house burnt down and I was making a fire that could have burnt down your house of course I should pay for things that are in it but if I was making a fire in the middle of a field and all I saw around me was wheat right and all of a sudden and you wind up that you buried something precious in that wheat like that's not my responsibility yes but I understand that it's my wheat you buried your hand over right. it's your wheat I mean I'll you're entitled to do what, right and do whatever you want right and if my ox goes ahead and you know, and uh, gores, uh, you know, whatever, like you know, gore, like like knocks down a wall. Let's say, you know, like it's a mazik, it hits down a wall or whatever, and buried it. And you were, t- and you had some some something hidden in that wall, right? Say so I'd be higher, right? So why is it there by the fire? So it might be though here. The thing is, is that, and this might be the other hamazik idea. Normally, we assume if eitzur is mishum chitzav that it's more of a liability. But if you think about it in terms of like what would consider it as if I did that act, right? So maybe if like I'm making a fire and I should be expect, I, 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 I'm negligent and I should have been aware that it could have escaped and done all these things, it's like I destroyed them. But something that I had no reason to expect, like you can't really attribute it so much as if I did it. Meaning the Asian machine Kitsa makes me more to blame but also makes it harder to say I did a particular thing. Right? When as you say, if you say that it's because the animal did the act, when my animal destroyed this this thing that was hidden in the wall, right? That it did. I have to pay for it. It's my animal. I'm responsible. My ace did destroy something. So if you sort of like Eishamishu Mamono, you would have said my fire burned something. I have to pay for it. But if you have to say, was it like I destroyed it, right? So then if I weren't, if I didn't have a reason to expect it, that wasn't my sort of in court, like part of my initial negligence. So I agree. It's strange. Like why here all of a sudden, you know, do, does it 
it matter if I could have expected it or not? It might make a little more sense, as I said, if it has to be, as, it says, if I did it, right, as opposed to other things, when my animal, when my object does it, then I pay for whatever my object does. But here, to make it like as if I did it, maybe you could say if I wasn't aware. Okay, but that's, I would say, however you explain it, certainly I would say the simple sense of the Mishnah is that, um, is that there's no arbitrary halacha of something being hidden. It's a question that since I didn't have a reason to expect it, I'm exempt. The Gemara, until now we, we're used to the idea that there is this arbitrary halacha, and the Gemara is going to go back and make, make it that there is going to be this arbitrary halacha. You wanted to say something else? Is, it, is this all assuming accidental? Or like if I go and purposely set your face back on fire? No, well that's what well, we'll see about that. Something very similar to that in the Gemara. So the Gemara is going to make that distinction. The other thing I should say about the funny thing about the house is there seems to me to be a difference between a house and uh, a place where I expect people to hide things. Like, let's say a wall is a place where people hide things. Like, Lamar talks about, you know, you have these little holes in the wall, people hide things. So there is a place you say, okay, it's buried, but I should have expected that people hide things. But in a house, I wouldn't say stuff in a house is buried. Like, you walk into a house, you can see it. You have to be allowed entry into the house, but it's not exactly, it's not out in the open, but it's not exactly the same as being buried, in, like, right? So, it's also a difference. Let's take a look at what the Gemara says. Okay, I'm this debate of Tamun is only when it was a fire in your domain and it spread. The Buddha says you're Chayev. The rabbi is exempt. Right? Remember, when it starts in your domain and it spreads, it's a little bit more like it's less sort of seen as like you are you know, willfully doing it. This is very much then along the lines you said. If you started by putting a fire in your friend's property, then you don't get any exemptions. Then it's like, you know, you start by this act of violation, you're responsible for anything that comes out of it. Only Rava says, Rava, Ihachia, the Tani Sefer, that's true. The end of the Mishnah says, Rabbis agree when you light a house, you pay everything that's in it. People leave things in their houses. Why not make a distinction within the very case of the haystack? When are you exempt when you started in your property and it spread? And then it went into the friend's property. If you started in your friend's property, you pay everything. And the way Tosos also says it, the phrase Madli Katabira, lighting house, sounds like you lit your friend's property. You went into your friend's property and you torched his house. So it shouldn't have anything to do with the fact that people normally leave things in their houses. It should just have to do with the fact that you're always liable, according to this idea. Elamarava Batarki, please. So Rava says there are two degrees of the debate. And this sort of salvages the idea of the mission about what you could expect. And also the idea of there being an arbitrary exemption. Okay, so there's a debate when it starts in your property and it spreads. There is an arbitrary exemption when it spreads. And it's not in, and, and then whether it's something that could be expected or couldn't be expected, according to the rabbis, you're always exempt if it was buried, which is like a really disturbing idea, especially if you consider things in a house to be buried. So I'm irresponsible if I fire my property and it spreads and it burns down your house. I only have to pay for the house. I don't have to pay for any of the, any of the contents of the house, right? Even because that's what it says. When it starts in your property, that's an arbitrary exemption, according to the Chachamim. And 
and then they also debate when it's in your when you start in the friend's property. Rabbi Yudah Sever Mesham Komas Yipatocha. Rabbi Yudah, of course, continues, of course, to say you always pay. Rafiu Arniki, even if it would be like a wallet. Rabbanon Savino, Kalim Shadark and Lahatmi Bigdish, Sidon Morganukli Bakar, things that are normally hidden. Let's say you lit not a house, but you know you lit a, a stack of grain. So things that people normally bury in a stack of grain, like these various types of uh, you know um, uh, things that they would use the uh, beams that they would use the, the yokes or whatever that they would use on their animals so those things who that you pay because that could have been expected things that you don't normally bury you would not pay so therefore when the rabbis say when you like your friend's house you pay because people normally hide things there that's because you started in your friend's property when you start in your property you're always exempt okay arbitrary exemption when you start in your friend's property then you would be liable for anything that normally should be expected now again, again I don't know if that is you know how much is that different uh, starting in your friend's property but trying to destroy or just you know I mean there's ways I could start in my friend's property right it's like you know I've uh, I don't know I was camping out in your in your backyard without your permission in your forest and I was making a little fire you know and cooking something and then there's I like, take a torch and I'm trying to torch your property right there's big differences of starting in your friend's property right which is also by the way the question I've always asked about Eishu Mishum Chitzav and Mishum Mamono like let's say I literally take a torch and you know light your haystack and burn it down is that Eish or do would everybody say that's like Adamamazik you know so anyway one wonders right would there be a case with like the Kavana where even if it's not Darko you'd be Chayev because then it would much more be Adamamazik that's not stated in the Gemara yes why are hidden in terms of a house since that is the natural that's what I said like the whole calling it buried it's really not buried it's just like not exposed which is really the phrase the Gemara used before Makama Begaloi like standing grain is exposed so somehow something not exposed right uh, you know I don't really get it somehow it seems to be this idea that it has to be exposed somehow it seems to be like I light a fire and like you know you sort of like you look around and sort of the things that are like there that are visible are like the potential you know sort of uh, fuel of the fire so and other things are, I, I, I don't really get it but there's some idea about that that there's this, this exemption if it's not exposed okay but that's when you start by your own when you start somebody else's fundamentally much more of a violation or of an Adamamazi component and then but you still have this distinction of could you expect it or not expect it um, okay so now the Gemara says like this Tanerabanan we taught you lit this uh, stack of grain and there were some vessels in it and they burned you pay everything you only pay as if it were a whole stack of wheat or of barley but you pay at least as what you should have expected to be there you don't pay for the tailing but you don't totally exempt you look at it as if it's filled with grain now again the funny thing is here the language sounds like you went into your friend's property and you lit his stack of grain but based on what we just said if that were true you would pay for the tailing especially tailing that normally would be there okay so we have to assume that the scenario here is is that you lit in your property and 
it spread, which is actually what the next line of the Brighta says. The Medra Mamurim Bamadli Patoish Shalot, when you live in your property, and that case, that's when you're going to be Pater, because that's what we said is Tamun Be'ish. That's the arbitrary exemption, when it's spread from your property out. But if you started in your friend's property, you pay everything. Now, of course, this is somewhat consistent with what we said before, the difference between starting in your starting in the friends. But what it should have said here is, if it was something that could have been expected. But since that's the scenario, the scenario is that there were kalim in a haystack, which presumably means the normal types of kalim that there would be in a haystack, okay? So therefore, you're going to pay. So this Brita supports what Rava was saying. If you start in your property and it spreads, it's an arbitrary exemption. If you start in your friend's property, you're going to be chayev at least for the things that could have been expected to have been there. Right? So that's clear. So basically, although a little vague, we've restated what we said until now. Now the Gemara says like this. Umoda Rebbe Yehuda, now Rebbe Yehuda says you're always chayev. He agrees that he, you basically you know I guard David and I let you sure you want to use my property come in and, and you know make some uh, stack your grain be my, be my guest and you went and you stacked your grain and you buried something in your grain then I don't have to pay for it because then I could presumably say now you remember a while ago we talked about if I give you pro- permission to come into my property I might have more liability I'm like explicitly accepting responsibility for stuff you're bringing in. But here, on the other hand, I can say to you, I only gave you permission for your grain. I didn't tell you you could hide your vessels. So the fact, I don't, I don't have a th- your right to tell you what you can do on your property. Right? So if my thing burnt down your thing on your property, what do you mean, oh, I didn't expect it. It's my property. I can do what I want. But here I could say, I had a right to assume that the only thing that was there was grain. Because that's the only thing I allowed you to put there. Alright? So, in that case, I would not have to pay you for other things that you hid. Um, now, if I gave you permission, you know, let's stop here because the next line is very, uh, no, let's read it. It's confusing, but we might as well be done with it now and then we'll continue something else tomorrow. <laughs> I gave you the permission to put, to put wheat and you put barley. So in that case, I'm obviously going to pay only for the barley because it only destroyed barley. That's the easy case. Okay, so if I gave you permission for barley and you put wheat, okay, so all these things we're going to pay, say I only pay for barley. Now that's interesting. I gave you permission to put barley. You used it to put wheat. It burnt it down. So that would be sort of like, you know, that's sort of like a, like when you come into my property without permission and my ox scores you, I'm exempt. So you brought your wheat into your property without my permission. I only gave you permission for barley. So if it burns down the wheat, I'm exempt. I'm responsible as if it were barley, but I'm going to be exempt for the fact that it was wheat. You didn't have permission to have wheat here. Now, how about it's heating the heat on this o-ring? It's wheat that you covered with barley. Well, if it was all wheat, I'm going to be exempt from, 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 for paying wheat because you didn't have the right. So this as well. It, wheat that looks like barley, but also I'm going to be exempt for the wheat part of it because you didn't have a right to have wheat here. How about sa'orin v'chip and v'chitim? How about um, you brought in barley and you covered them with wheat? Well, at the end of the day, in all these cases, you only had right to have barley here. So in all these cases, she'enu m'shalim el-demi sa'orin bilvad. Okay? So even though those... You you know, in a way, those could be a case of tamun. If you did it in your property, you know, you had wheat covered with barley, barley covered with wheat, Red Yudah would say, you pay what was really there. But if I only gave you permission to do barley, 
then anything you've got going on in this field that's more than barley is something that you're in my field without permission and I'm going to be exempt for. Like first, uh, that's interesting. If I gave a mission for wheat and you brought in barley, but barley costs less than wheat, but are you saying that since fundamentally you're without permission, yeah, you see, that's an interesting thing. We don't say, for example, when I gave you permission for wheat and you bring, for barley and you bring in wheat, that I'm totally putter. Like somehow I'm still liable for the cost of the barley. So because you, yeah, it's a funny idea. You're right. It's not like, oh, you had no permission for this object. I have no liability. Like since you, right. Like since you could have brought in barley, at least I have to pay you as if it were barley. Sort of like the kale. But because I don't have to pay you for the kale, but I have to pay you as if they were the thing that should have been there. It's a funny idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one may be more flammable than that. Uh, that's a good point too. All right.